0: The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights, all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today.
1: Hello and welcome to Squawk Here are your headlines today. ECB staff discuss strike action after rejecting a below inflation pay offer as the Central Bank's own survey shows price pressures are set to rise next year. Hong Kong's Hang Seng jumps on local media reports. Authorities are considering a further easing of COVID measures, with tech stocks leading the charge.
2: Uh, Crew prices recouping a little bit of their losses after sinking to their lowest level this year, a uh, way lower than uh, they have been at the start of the war, whilst China's President Xi Jinping starts his three-day visit to Saudi Arabia in a bid to boost ties with the region.
0: The S&P 500 posts its fifth straight negative session as rate concerns cloud the outlook while consumer borrowing climbs, but National Economic Council director Brian Dees tells CNBC the economy is still robust.
2: The United States is incredibly well positioned to be the place where investment, productivity and innovation happen.
0: Morning, morning, morning. You know what today is don't you? Go on. It's finally the <laughs> yes, last day.
2: Carrot's <laughs> <Karen's laughs>
0: last day around the set.
2: It's finally we're your 20, last day 22. of the
1: year. How, many <laughs> How many times have we done this?
2: How many times have we done this? Six? Seven? Started
1: late we, we forgot week, we? the
2: start this week but Fresh. now we're back on a message again.
1: Friday we started. Now. So are you off
2: today or tomorrow?
1: Today. Wow. You yeah. packed? Yeah. yeah. I've been packed for a while. you are
2: going up the twirly staircase and turning less with a glass of Dompom?
1: Well one, one likes to be comfortable.
0: I
2: am going to miss both well, of you though. Oh, Happy Friday. And
1: viewers. Yeah and
2: happy holidays. Yeah, um, well
0: Karen's you. obviously extremely happy about the fact that she's heading off to sunnier Climes but the well, staff okay. over at the ECB are not so happy
2: well, it yeah. seems. Should we tweet, give the backstory
0: to our viewers about it because there's a lot is of the back
2: story? Well there is a backstory. Well, mm. I'll, I'll let them on, under the uh, under the, the skirt to the ankle of what's going on at CNBC.
0: I'm not sure you can racy, use that phrase.
2: Can you any not longer? use that phrase, anymore. No, you Very can't racy use it, for Didn't you uh, used no. to be in the.
0: What's that? Oh, I mean, show, oh in the bad show, old days. In, in the, the bad old days of misogyny no, no, and so on and so forth. No, I was going to In like, oh, the 20s, okay. yeah, yeah, exactly. Ah. It
2: would just be showing an ankle, wasn't it? Yeah. Can we not say that?
0: I'm not sure what we can say these oh, okay. days. Most but, of it seems to be off limits.
2: We've had to a, someone. a strenuous debate <coughs> with Mike and the team, and Britt yeah. and Dave and everyone about what yes, our headline do. stories are today because there's a lot of really interesting news out there, as is there is every day. But there isn't a, a kind of killer story. So, Jeff won.
0: Well I don't know if I won, <laughs> but I I just thought that this 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 story uh, I mean it has it has has everything it has human drama it has markets it has have the financial statistics we'll get to the Kardashians later because I believe there is a story and that was the other about he- the Kardashians top headline a bit later done, yeah? on. but I mean I, I mean this is delicious isn't it you know we 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 talk a lot about inflation and its impact yeah. on workers and there's industrial action breaking out everywhere at the moment and it's not just in Europe it's not just in the UK, it's in the United States. Even some of our uh, colleagues at the New York Times are now walking off the job because they're not happy about the pay settlement.
1: So we call it the <clears throat> mince pie indicator? <clears throat> not the McDonald's indicator. It's right on Christmas. People yeah. are, it's costing them more to buy mince pie. They're going to get a smaller mince pie as a result of what's happening around the cost-of-living crisis. Well,
0: the, the British the trade, very trade union festive way, leader... festive way of looking yeah, well, at it. Well, there's it. another festive the, the, yeah. the, the
2: British trade union leader, who is most vilified by <sighs> government... Lit- tr- we're talking Mick about. Lynch, right. they called him Lynch the Grinch. Which which just carries on with your uh, Christmas matter. Go tell people the story. All right, here we go.
0: Uh, Staff at the European Central Bank are apparently threatening to go on strike after refusing a pay rise offer of just over 4%. That is less than half the rate of inflation in the Eurozone. (laughs) Union officials reportedly met with ECB President Christine Lagarde, where she's believed to have made clear there would be no further salary negotiations. Now, the irony, this come as the ECB's own inflation survey showed consumer prices are expected to rise 5.4% over the next 12 months. That's up from 5.1% from the month before. Inflation is expected to decline gradually over the first half of 2023 before disinflation picks up pace towards the end of the year inflation estimates for the next three years remain unchanged at three percent that's well above the ecb's two percent target Uh, We've talked a bit about the strike-related story here. I think it's worth just blending in some of the other economic information that we've had here because um, we've got, what? what is this, the the third down session for European markets, the fifth down session for American markets. I think we're beginning to ask the question now of whether the markets are beginning to roll over because they recognise some of the early signs that recession is beginning to emerge on both sides of the atlantic uh, you were having a look at some of the credit related data in the united states my understanding is that household debt in the us is now well in excess of 16 trillion 16.7 trillion was the
2: latest data 3 weeks ago so
0: that is a big number uh, what is what is that in terms of uh, every household i mean something like 30 to 40 Thousand dollars, I think, per household. But what are the latest numbers telling us? So you want revolving credits, though? Yeah, data. So
2: look. So the that. latest um, consumer credit data out of the U.S. showed 27.1 billion increase in October. So that's a big number, but it's nowhere near as big as the biggest figure of the year, which was a 45 billion increase back in March. So that in itself is inconclusive. It's a much bigger figure than the average figure before COVID. The average uh, monthly increase was 15.4 billion. Mm -hmm. This is a significant amount more than that, but lower than the highest. so inconclusive. But what seems unambiguous, and I say seems unambiguous, because it's only one data point, is that once again, the revolving credit figures are picking up, and I know the team have been good at putting together a few boards on that on the evolving credit. It's over 10 billion. There is a slight contention about whether it's 10.1 or the Federal Reserve website page that shows 10.4, but either way, we're talking about hitting a new all time high. Now this is fascinating. A because of what you were talking about about household debt uh, and b because there are an awful lot of economists out there who are talking about excess wealth held by households excess savings somewhere in the region of 1.7 trillion but if all was well on the excess savings front from households we wouldn't necessarily be seeing record revolving credit data and record revolving credit data includes credit cards we all know that the average rate of credit card um, interest rates in the United States is somewhere in the region of 19%. It's been ticking higher, of course, as interest rates gone up, but it's somewhere in the region of 19%. So it is one of the most inefficient ways of borrowing money if you can borrow cheaper elsewhere. So one, does that show something about liquidity conditions, about the availability of credit elsewhere before families are putting money on credit cards? And two, and this is the eternal question where people like um, Smead and others and I and we, we've been having these debates, is if the household savings are so so robust for median families and average families rather than the total which is skewed by the rich at the top why are people putting so much money record amounts of money on credit cards and I don't think we necessarily have an answer yet.
1: a necessary erosion of wages real incomes I think is the answer here I mean and then all these stories are linked so if you consider why the ECB has not pushed forward with a sizable increase that matches inflation it's because they're worried about second-round effects and there's lots of reports where they go back over history and they're looking at the 1970s on the OPEC oil embargo and say at that time Absolutely. effectively you saw a slightly different outcome uh, here's a line uh, difference is that real consumer wages <laughs> declined after the recent rise in energy inflation while they strongly increased in the 1970s and I think that's Issue. a lot of policymakers keen not to make a policy error that was similar in other energy situations and if you keep on pushing wages up, and then you trigger those second round effects. And already we've got stubbornly high inflation in so many parts of the world. Unfortunately, one of the unnecessary or one of the necessary casualties here mm. could be the credit side. It's uh, the health of uh, the finances of health of households because the only way to protect them would be to increase wages so that they're not feeling the impact. But then you get this spiral again of inflation. So unfortunately, the data that you bring forward of the credit side, the housing data we've been seeing lately, some of the, the weakening in retail sales, that is all exactly what central banks want to see because it means we're not triggering second round effects on inflation.
0: Um, funnily enough, we were you know, talk, talking about um, showing some of the backstory and some of the working out. We were also having a conversation about financial repression in the newsroom this morning because ultimately um, linking back to the ECB story with inflation running at the number that it is, um, any pay settlement at the moment that doesn't reflect that inflation number uh, is basically um, employees being left behind somewhat um, when it comes to prices and when it comes to household income. The problem is, as you say, uh, there is a, a, a great fear because if I think we we know anything from our economic history, we know that a wage-price spiral isn't a good outlook for markets, for economies, for individuals, there have been enough, I think, um, uh, scenarios through history to tell us that inflation is something that you really want to stamp out and you don't want to let it get out of control. The problem at the moment, it seems to me, is that the uh, politicians, um, in spite of what they know about economic history, can't help themselves because um, they all desperately need to get elected or want to get re-elected when their particular uh, elections come up and the one way to do that is to give money yes to consumers to try and fill the gap between inflation and uh, where we are on pay, and the problem is that we also know from our economic history that that doesn't necessarily work. It recent only fuels, acti- it only fuels activity, right? that wage-price spiral yeah. here. And the other thing we know from our economic history in the 70s is that price controls don't work either. And yet it's where a lot of politicians are going at the moment because they think, like King Canute, you can hold back the tide by just implementing a price control that everybody then works Which around. Which
1: takes us to the point are we looking at a policy error? Because I think that's what the markets have been responding to this week instead of all the good news that perhaps things are not as bad as we thought and maybe we've got some sort of Fed moderating the action on uh, interest rate increases and a bit of the Chinese reopening story. I think investors are now going back to where they were earlier in the year, worried about some sort of policy mistake, that we're not going to have that Goldilocks recession, not too hot, not too cold, just enough of a slowdown to reset the equation. And I think there are question marks around that. You're seeing that wobble come back into the market as we look to close out 2022. And I think investors are right to ask that question how much can you tighten an economy? I mean, inflation in the United States is coming down slowly at this point. That could again be uh, put into question when we get the next CPI print of uh, the, uh, the unemployment levels if they go up to 5%. I mean, what does that really look like in terms of delinquencies uh, for banks and across the system? Well, we tried to Is ask. that going to be a soft recession or not? Is it going to be much worse than that?
2: Yeah, but we tried to ask about delinquencies of a ratings agency last week. Uh, and the gentleman in question, W- w- refused to give us, the, the view. they said, oh, well, they could be as low as 4% of delinquencies, but they may go up as high as 12%. Well, I say, well, that's useless for a start. That doesn't help us. So come and tell us what you think. Well, these are just our range of scenarios. So, so we, yeah, more, 4% delinquencies, pretty much historical norm. 12% bit of a crisis and represents a, a, a cyclical trough as well. It was, it was. The rating agencies refused to kind of help us out on that one as well. So maybe someone more useful on the rating agencies will come on the show yeah. uh, and tell us what they really think about that. Because I agree with you. Double digit delinquencies in corporates is a real and dangerous proposition, and the whole. Uh, Corporate debt market is something we're concerned about and should be concerned about. It is a great canary in the coal mine for greater problems elsewhere in other markets and broader in the economy. But again, the area, if we're going to make this a, a broader conversation as well, the other area we should all be worried about at the moment, and this show has consistently tried to look into, uh, and we're getting kind of a a straight bat response from a lot of people in those markets, is private sectors, not Mm. the public markets. The public markets are showing very well, as you mentioned, with the the markets going down on a daily basis, what they think is going on with recession indicators. The private markets are very glib about it. These property funds, these REITs as well, they're very glib about it. The VCs, they're very glib about it. The private equity market, they are glib about it. Actually, those markets need to revalue and revalue fast because the worry is that it's not only themselves they're going. It's all the pension funds that have invested into them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just to remind uh, people who who maybe haven't following this very closely, in, in the very low interest rate environment we've had. Um, institutions have tried to improve their return by stepping outside of the public markets and we've had a lot of guests on who've talked about the opportunity in alternatives. Well that represents uh, property, it represents uh, lots of other areas of the public markets that you don't necessarily have to mark to market on a daily basis. The problem is, as as you're pointing out here, um, people will have overpaid in those days of near zero interest rates and now there will be a repricing as interest rates rise. And that may have an impact on other por- parts of the portfolio that are in the public markets as well. So, so be very aware that you've there are two things here: there's a there's a duration mismatch, mm-hmm. and there's a liquidity mismatch potentially here. Yeah, then- I don't want to be incredibly negative, though. There is one way we get out of this, and it's productivity ultimately. And yeah. there was a slightly better, better bit of data of yesterday course. on U.S. productivity, which suggested perhaps that uh, productivity is picking up here. And um, j- just to mention another story that we may get into a little bit later on, apparently Elon Musk has his own plan for how Twitter <laughs> improves its liquidity See, and productivity. You sack half the workforce and then you put beds in to get the remaining half to work twice as hard and sleep overnight or maybe you know that's not, may not, not the plan. For that? That's not the plan apparently. Uh, well oh, you can't sleep overnight in the offices. The hotel room,
2: no, well <clears> I don't know about that, but the hotel rooms that have been created in the offices in former conference suites may not have permitting for a change of usage. Which matters.
1: Right. This used to be part of history, though. You know, you think of entertainment industries. We used to always have beds on on uh, site somewhere because Did it you? was absolutely. What kind of
0: entertainment <laughs> industry are we talking about? Well, Karen?
1: television, where you worked all sorts of strange hours, and some right. of it with double shifts because uh, you were the face of a network, and effectively you had to so pull back a morning in Los, shift. You had a,
2: right.
0: a bedroom in the there
2: office. There
1: were there were definitely beds around to lie, have a nap in case you were doing both ends of the day.
0: Absolutely. There was, uh, there is a a story. I think uh, going back into the mists of time at CNBC about a a boss turning up for a tour of the office and finding someone asleep in an editing suite. And uh, that, that I don't remember that playing particularly well, to be honest.
2: Who was it? Yeah. Let's not, uh,
0: let's let's (laughs) not mention the name on air, even though the director's shouting it in our ear at this very moment. (laughs) That one will remain a mystery. I
2: didn't even hear what he said. Good. And he's not not reiterating it, no. (laughs) No. Okay, all right. The CEOs of two Wall Street banks, uh, big banks at that, are warning of a slowdown amid weaker consumer demand. Check out CNBC.com. Also coming up on the show, reopening stocks catch a bid in Hong Kong on reports the government may ease COVID restrictions. We'll discuss.
1: And for more on potential strike action at the ECB after that below inflation payoff, as well as the latest on COVID curbs easing in Hong Kong and China, you can check out the Squawk Box podcast. have a line crossing from Shanghai at this hour Shanghai city authorities will from Friday stop requiring covid test checks for restaurants or entertainment venues so where uh, you can go into uh, some of these entertainment facilities now without a test as of tomorrow so exciting and news for shanghai residents no doubt meantime let's talk about uh, some of those other restrictions hong kong's government is reportedly considering scrapping its outdoor mask mandate and shortening the isolation period for people who test positive for COVID 19. According to local media reports, positive cases in close contacts would be subject to five days of isolation, down from seven. Any loosening move would be in line with measures announced in mainland China yesterday, less than two weeks after protests against Beijing's handling of the crisis swept across the country. China's National Health Commission will hold a briefing in little under an hour's time. A look at markets, the Hang Seng at this hour, you can see is stronger, 2.6% higher. So uh, the index bouncing at this point. Technology names, let's just see the makeup of those stocks and the contribution that we've got. It's solid, isn't it? Uh, Bilibili uh, outpacing most uh, double-digit gains, 18%, but still very solid numbers on JD.com up more than 5%. Maituan more than 6% in the green. And to Macau Casino stocks, uh, there was uh, a lot of trade in these uh, around uh, some of the recent changes with Macau soaring 20% higher. Well, some investors are happy to put bets on that uh, based on this uh, trade just in one day alone. SJM Holdings, uh, another big mover, up 10+. plus. got to
2: say, I see the big moves, but I do worry if there's a liquidity problem if they're moving that aggressively on these tentative stories. Um, Xi Jinping has begun his three-day trip to Saudi Arabia in what China calls an epoch-making milestone for China-Arab relations. Well, let's see if it is an epoch-making milestone with Dan, who joins us now. Dan, good morning to you.
3: Hi there, Steve. Well, on Capital Connection earlier today, I asked one of our guests if he believes that President Xi sees opportunity in Saudi Arabia's recently fractured relationship with the United States. And the answer to that question was a resounding yes, because I think you only need to look at the optics of this trip to give you some insight into exactly just how warmly Xi was received here. Saudi Arabia seems more than happy to welcome President Xi with open arms. We saw fighter jets from the Royal Saudi Air Force escorting Xi's plane through Saudi airspace when he arrived. We saw Uh, aerobatic planes with green smoke trails, greeting him when he landed. It's certainly a far cry from that really awkward fist bump that we saw between MBS and uh, President Joe Biden when Biden was in Saudi Arabia earlier on this year. And that is a contrast that perhaps the Saudis would like to demonstrate here. It's a message to Washington that Saudi Arabia is willing to embrace strategic partners like China for the betterment of its economy and society in areas like trade, security, uh, investment and and, and uh, business deals and beyond. Of course, uh, we know that Saudi Arabia is the biggest U.S. ally in the region. It is China's top oil supplier. And how the Americans react and respond to what they're seeing unfold before their eyes right now remains to be seen. Uh, President Biden has said that he doesn't want to cede U.S. influence to Russia, Iran or China in the Middle East, but he has few options to respond, you could contend. So how all of this shakes out from a geoeconomic perspective remains to be seen. What we're told, though, is that we will see significant deals, trade deals, coming out of this uh, this uh, meeting uh, worth in the order of about $30 billion. We're yet to get more detail on exactly what that looks like. And of course, President Xi is also uh, underway with other summits taking place uh, across, uh, involving uh, other uh, Arab leaders from across the region as well so a deepening of ties from China uh, into Saudi Arabia and the rest of the Arab world uh, unfolding right now guys
0: Dan terrific coverage thank you very much indeed for that new lead us neatly into our conversation with uh, doctor Chen Shaolin uh, head of international at crane shares um, nice to see you this morning thanks for joining us M- maybe we can just pick up on on that point how critical uh, is this trip do you think to the Middle East as far as the Chinese government is concerned
4: Very important in many ways. It probably marks very important milestones for China and between Arab countries in many ways because I think, uh, uh, you know, Karen touched base on early on on the reopenings. This is a very critical moment for Xi Jinping. This is Xi Jinping's third international overseas trip uh, for this year or since 2020, i would be honest with you. Um, uh, That actually shows Xi Jinping's move to restore his international or global leadership in many ways. That's number one. And number two, when People's Republic of China, mainland China, founded in 1949, uh, this is the first ever, the highest level of diplomatic events between Arab countries and China. So you can see from a political point of view, it is very important. Milestones between the two. Uh, economically, uh, you could also uh, mark is very important because China has very high Trade or bilateral trade um, with Arab countries in many ways. I think last year they recorded the highest level of the the, the uh, trading, probably around three hundred billion dollars altogether between the two, and also China imported half of the crude oil from Arabs.
0: Right, uh, and so. As I look at this and I look at maybe the diplomatic nuances Mm -hmm. does this send any message at all about Beijing's Mm -hmm. attitude towards Russia at the moment and perhaps a um, a falling out of Mm favour because of some of the nuclear threats that have been made by President Putin and various other Mm -hmm. Russian officials? Is this trip about showing the Russians that China has other friends that can supply energy?
4: In this trip is less to do with China show Russia or the rest of the world, it's more of China itself focused on how it's looking for strategic partners in the rest of the world. i tell you a couple of examples, for instance, in this trip Dan mentioned earlier on the $30 billion trade, that includes infrastructure, information, new energy, new technology, that just shows China is actively looking for partners in academic terms across the world, if you remember at the Communist Party Congress, Xi Jinping made an announcement or made a reiteration saying China will continue to focus on the One Belt, One Road initiatives. This is the, I believe, we will see how the deal get reviewed in a few days. I believe it will be heavy emphasized on Chinese corporates to go outside of China to build the infrastructure upgrade needed in the Arab countries. So I think it's more of like how they can export the expertise of Chinese domestic economics skills to the international world, rather than anything else, in my opinion. This
1: trip coinciding with this reopening theme now in China, that the markets have been moving on all week, and uh, you know the view was that it was going to happen fairly slowly, mm-hmm. but the announcements have been coming very quickly now. And mm-hmm. we just mentioned the Shanghai one, but not having any testing going into uh, facilities that, yeah. quite frankly, had a lot of testing previously. Mm-hmm. So, how do we think about the pace of reopening from the Chinese? Is it going to be faster than people expected?
4: I would agree with you, Karen, this will be a gradual and sequential process. But why the, uh, the announcement come out again after three days, when you remem- remember when they initially announced a relaxation was in 11th of November, right, and now three weeks later, they announced another optimized 10 measures. I think it's more to do with the central government to make sure there's no miscommunication in understanding and executing. Of the new policy, you see the past of the people, how people is like we are relaxing while we still locked down. So the, the kind of you know social kind of you know conflicts. Now what they do is they say, let's say make it clear. This is the ten measures you're going to implement across you know from the top to uh, to bottom local governments across China. But I think you're absolutely right. They they make sure the policy message is very clear but they will leave the local government to implement them. I think this reopening uh, is happening, like we see, the uh, remove healthcare QR code, the remove a testing, remove a PR, PCR testing, all these things are happening uh, with a very clear message. Reopening is happening, but you know, it will be a gradual and sequential one. I think this will put a lot of tests on Chinese healthcare systems. The cases will go up, you already seen it has gone up. I will test the system if they are managed such a situation well. Also, the elderly people, how they're going to roll out the vaccination for the elderly people to reassure complete a full reopen is down down the line.
1: If we could just stretch to the politics here and what sort of threat the reopening poses to Beijing authorities and President Xi himself, because many of us are trying to reconcile Mm -hmm. how you go from one very strict policy Mm -hmm. to something that mimics the West uh, Mm -hmm. for an authoritarian government. How do you do that U-turn without Mm -hmm. losing face or a sense of power over Mm -hmm. the people?
4: I think uh, the Chinese government under a lot of pressure from how they see you know, we deal with the situation locally here. That's number one. Number two, also the vaccinations choices become more available. Also the vaccination vaccine that they used in China domestically become more recognized internationally. So they have more confidence to say, let's vaccinate the elderly people. That's the second. Third, the economy is under pressure to recover from a, from COVID strict measures, no doubt about that. I think they recognize that and also particularly after the CCP, Xi Jinping set a very ambitious goal to modernize the society. That would mean China has to produce a 4 to 5% GDP growth from now on for a decade. How are you going to achieve that with a lockdown economy? I think all in all, they felt the results of continuous lockdown would probably weigh less in protecting life then probably sacrifice more economic growth. So I think the the chances now is reopening is set. The goal, you have the target goal, but along the way, I'd say it's it's going to be a bumpy road.
2: It is going to be a bumpy road. And actually, I wanted to ask you about the bumpy belt and road initiative uh, before you even mentioned it today, because it needs a relaunch doesn't it and it needs a reboot because it has now been accused in some emerging countries of being part of debt trap diplomacy Uh, and now secondly i would say a lot of Western democracies have turned their back on the BRI and actually have suddenly decided hang on a second we don't necessarily want to do this because you talked about bringing Chinese expertise in very often that's at the expense of local workers and local expertise so it's Chinese workers and Chinese expertise comes in and it becomes a Chinese project as well that is another one of the accusations and my third point which um, you can address all of this is that the West is very concerned that this is about influence as well uh, as creating economic links as well Uh, and it seems that we are seeing now an EU and a US response to this and perhaps um, remembering that perhaps they need influence as well in some of these regions.
4: Economic influence is uh, an, a, a going to be a part of it, right? Because China is bringing investments, China is bringing expertise. And don't forget it's along 30 plus, 40 plus countries. Uh, to going to get involved in the Belt and Road initiatives. It's not going to be an easy project to roll out. It will last for decades. But if you look at the Asia Development Bank, they estimate it's going to be you know, uh, billions of dollars needed for the infrastructure project to roll out in Asia in many ways. Uh, does it need just Chinese expert- expertise? I think China stands out as offering the expertise over. If you remember from uh, probably the opening reform when Deng Xiaoping announced that policies from 1980s until 2010, China has focused on nothing over those 30 years but build its own country. So they really mastered in the skills of uh, building infrastructure-related skills, soft skills and hard skills. And obviously now China has progressed to a service-driven economy. They have to let that part of the driver, that. Matured in the economy to be used elsewhere. So, with their intention of growing, China continue to rebalance the, the economy. They have all the intention to export, but you have rightly said uh, is do does the neighbors need it, right? Um, to, to such skills. If you see how the Asia Development Bank focus Asia infrastructure does need billions of dollars to rebuild its infrastructure to meet with next generation's growth in the Asian, uh, in the region to to benefit from such. So, it is going to be. We mean situation, but not all the project will be economically viable to many people's eyes, many investors. I, I don't doubt about that. It's not all going to be very success, very immediate you can uh, assess uh, economic wins in many ways.
2: Can we get a market call off you? Because sure. seeing as you know, you represent Crane shares as well. We've seen the Shanghai Composite trading circa 3200 now, I had a solid bounce of its recent lows. Is the market, dare I say, very binary in its response to what's going on on the COVID front? Is that the key driver or is there something else we need to think about when looking at um, Asian and specifically Chinese stocks?
4: Uh, the, the, the rally so, so, so far, I, I think is sentiment driven. Uh, what I meant by that is a lot of the issues now get more clarities from the Chinese government. You got more clarities on COVID, you got more clarities on real estates. You got more of like a, you know Karen was saying the concrete measures to say now the COVID is reali- reality to on the way of exit. So it's investment sentiments which has dropped to very low level over the last uh, year and a half. Uh, Now to say the huge relief from the investor to say I can expect China to back on their feet to track and grow their economy from here going forward. It's a lot of that drives and also uh, it's a lot of the reactions of uh, oversold by the macro factor, driven right. by other events. For instance, internet regulation. We didn't touch base on that. All of the, all of that, all of that has corrected. For instance, internet sector in China is right at the front and center of the regulations in internet. It's fallen almost 60 percent from its peak, right? And from since the initial announcement of COVID relax, internet sector rebounded 23 percent you know, just from that. It just shows investors now saying, you know what, the macro factor impacted performance so much, now giving me the clarity and the confidence to say, investors, maybe now is the time to look at fundamentals. And if you look at fundamentals, internet sector today, the forward PE is at three standard deviation below its 10 years mean. So it just shows fundamentally is very attractive. Macro factor gave me the clarity, fundamental very attractive, investors are reacting to it. Mm. Um, so yeah,
2: there's a lot to unpack there. Look, thank you very much indeed for coming yeah. in and talking to us about the bigger factors and, of course, about the market itself. So, uh, we look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you thank so you. much indeed for your time. You. Uh, Chen Shaolin, who is head of international at Crane Shares.
0: Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com.
1: Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.